Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Nishkanen Center. Our special guest this week is Peter Weiner, contributing writer to the New York Times and The Atlantic. Thanks one and all. Well, it is a very smoky East Coast that we greet you from. It's the first time that I've experienced this kind of thing where you walk outside and you think, wow, my neighbor must have some sort of bonfire going that's blowing right into our yard. But nope, it's uh, a lot bigger than that and very, very eerie. But uh, anyway, so we're here to discuss the shape of the GOP field. Probably this is the final set, though we can't be certain of that. This week, we saw Mike Pence declare his candidacy. And he said a number of things that he has not said before about Donald Trump. And I'm going to ask Pete Weiner to comment first. He said, President Trump's words were reckless. They endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol. And he said, the American people deserve to know that President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution and I always will. So that sounds great. And I hasten to add that Pence deserves full credit for what he did on January 6th that could have gone very differently if he'd made a different decision. But Pete Weiner, you know, when he was asked whether if Trump were the nominee, he would support him, he said yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's a problem. It's a very Mike Pence thing to do, I should uh, I should say, and that's emblematic of what a lot of the Republican candidates and party is like these days. More and more of them are willing to criticize Trump, though gently for the most part. But Bill Barr did the same thing when he was on his book tour. Uh, said in a blink of an eye, he would vote for Trump over the Democratic nominee, which shows either that they're morally deformed or that they're utterly cynical or some combination of both. I think the important thing to say about Pence, who's not a particularly talented political candidate, is what his candidacy and what's happened to his candidacy says about the Republican Party, which is he did choose the Constitution, as you said, and he deserves credit for it. And the fact that he chose the Constitution decimated his chances to be the Republican nominee. And the fact that that is the case, once again, is an illustration of the sort of depravity that's overtaken uh, what was once an impressive and in some respects a great party. Uh, Linda Chavez, I'm sort of at a loss to figure out what Pence thinks he's doing. Do you think it might be that he genuinely does believe that God wants him to run and will arrange things on his behalf? Because looking at polling, looking at what Pete just mentioned about the nature of the Republican Party, a significant part of the Republican Party thinks Pence is a traitor because he didn't do what the God King instructed. And then there's another big chunk that regards him as the lickspittle vice president who couldn't say enough good things about Trump's broad-shouldered leadership, despite all of the depredations of the Trump years. So 
Well, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question, Mona, because I do think there is sort of a strain in evangelical Christianity, born-again Christians, who believe that God speaks to them directly. And, you know, I was reminded of this watching a show about uh, Pat Robertson, who died this week. And there was a clip played from the 700 Club in which Pat Robertson said that Mitt Romney was going to be elected president. And he was asked by the person on the program, well, how do you know that? And he said, because God told him. And maybe God has told the former vice president that he is going to be president. I don't understand it. I do understand the instinct to try to make something of the Republican Party again. I do think it is important to have a two-party system and that the parties ought to be differentiated by their ideology, by their policies, by their platforms. And Mike Pence clearly represents a very different vision for America than Joe Biden does. So I can understand his wanting to be president. I could understand his hoping to rebuild a space within the Republican Party for his kind of conservatism. But it seems to me a Sisyphean task. I don't see it happening. And part of it is because he's not all that appealing a character. And I think personality, the ability to connect with people, again, he may connect in certain communities, but I don't think he connects with people who are not part of that community. Right. And then there's the irony that Mike Pence is the guy who was chosen exactly because he would make Trump kosher to religious conservatives. He put his hands on Trump and blessed him and said, you really need to put aside all of your moral concerns about this guy. It's fine as an evangelical Christian to support someone of such low character. And now he's saying character really matters. And he certainly did persuade them that character didn't matter. Now they believe that. But anyway, Let's turn to somebody who has a slightly different personality. And Bill Galston, I'm coming to you on this because you mentioned that you thought Christie's entry into the race would be interesting. So he's in. He gave a town hall in New Hampshire for two hours. Uh, he really didn't hold his fire toward Trump. So your reaction? <laughs> it's exactly the Chris Christie that I expected to show up at the opening bell with fists flying. You know, there's some boxers who go to the center of the ring and then sort of try to size up the opponent. You'll throw an occasional jab, but is just trying to figure out the optimal way of, of going into the real fight. Well, that's not Chris Christie's style. You know, when the bell rang, he began throwing uppercuts and, and jabs to the jaw and it's very clear that that is exactly what he's going to do from the beginning of his campaign until the end, whenever the end comes. If I were Chris Christie, I would barely set foot in Iowa. Christie, I think, will be at his best in New Hampshire. He loves town halls. New Hampshireites love town halls, whether there are 20 people in them or 200 he could easily meet most of the Republicans in the state one-on-one, -on -one, more than once, 
during the course of, a, say, a six-month campaign. I think the jury's out on what kind of reception he's going to get in New Hampshire, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were somewhat better than expected. Uh, what do you think, Damon? Here's just a sample of, of what Christie said and the, kind of the way he said it in his usual pugnacious style. He said, the person I am talking about who is obsessed with the mirror, who never admits a mistake, who never admits a fault, and who always finds someone else and something else to blame for whatever goes wrong, but finds every reason to take credit for anything that goes right, is Donald Trump. Sure, that's nice. I mean, it's well stated. He's an articulate guy. He's good at thinking extemporaneously. Uh, in other words, he's a competent politician. My attitude about Christie entering the race is that if he's getting into it in order to be a kamikaze candidate who's going out there to kind of redeem himself, after, let us recall, he dropped out of the 2016 race in early February, and by the end of the month, he had become the first high-profile Republican to endorse Donald Trump. Long before it had been settled that Trump would be the nominee, he got to the head of the line and he stuck with him till the end, until January 6th. Sorry, I, I have to correct you, Damon. He stuck with him until election night when Trump refused to concede. Okay, all right. So, yeah. all right, until let's call it call it the broad election period. Yes, yes. <laughs> from, yes. from the moment the votes began to be counted and we started to see the closeness of it and so forth. But the problem here is not that he's kind of a tainted messenger. It's that it is very unlikely he's actually going to be president. So if he's going to jump in and be a kamikaze candidate and be the one guy on stage who has nothing to lose and he's going to go try to take down Trump in order to allow a more viable option to rise above Trump, probably DeSantis, but we'll see. That would be a very noble crusade. The problem is that he's already said some harsh comments about DeSantis. They were about DeSantis's waffling on foreign policy issues. But that is an indication that actually he's going to try to win, which means he's going to use that articulateness and that ability to think on his feet and to stick a knife into his opponents, which he used against Marco Rubio at a key moment of the race in 2016. He's going to use it to everyone around him, including DeSantis. And my real fear is that that is just going to be one more variable in the dynamic that's going to make it more likely that Trump ends up prevailing. Would Rubio have really taken down Trump in 2016? I very much doubt it, but he certainly was not helped by the New Hampshire debate in 2016, having Christie choose to go after Rubio above everybody else on the stage. It did damage. And so, say, if he hadn't done that and Rubio had done several points better in New Hampshire, the dynamic coming out of there might have been a little different, and who knows? So Christie being in there doesn't give me a tremendous amount of happiness. It makes me a little more nervous than I would be without him in there because he's a wild card and his very ability to go after the other candidates could really end up just doing Trump's work for him yet again. Yeah. Pete, I mean, 
Damon makes a good point that Christie's motives are always open to scrutiny. I mean, this is a person who was willing to, even after everything we saw in the Trump years, after the total degradation that Trump visited upon this country, Christie was one of his advisors. He was one of his debate coaches where he almost certainly caught COVID from Trump because Trump didn't reveal that he had it. And it nearly killed Christie. But he was all in in 2020. Now he says that he has had an awakening. And maybe he has. But as Damon points out, his history here of being a principled Republican who stands for the rule of law is weak. And he did say that he's not a paid assassin. He is in this to win. So if that means attacking other people who might stand a better chance of unseating Trump, it's really an open question as to what he would do there, right? Yeah, I think it is. I agree with your critique of Chris Christie because he was supporting Trump up till uh, the 2020 election. Of course, that was true of Liz Cheney as well. That's true. She was not as close to Trump, but she was supportive of him. And um, so you have to you have to deal with the world in which we find ourselves. And if Chris Christie has seen the light, or whether he's embraced this posture for other reasons, self interest, trying to redeem himself, a I don't know. B, I'll take him, whatever his motives are, because I guess for no other reason than it's emotionally cathartic for me to listen to the man. <laughs> yes. he's, he's making arguments that I felt like should have been made for years and years, and he is, he is effective. But he's not going to win the nomination. I hope he keeps his focus on Trump. I think he will. And that doesn't mean that he won't go after DeSantis or, or others as necessary and his circumstances dictate. But there's no question that the person that he's locked in on is Donald Trump. And I think he sees that as his mission. And he also sees it as the only way that he thinks he could win the nomination. Again, that's not going to happen. He's a he's a skilled politician. And I will say that in terms of this field generally, this is a stunningly weak field when you look at the people that are, that are in it. And at the end of the day, uh, whether Christie is effective or others were effective or not, I think the key figure here is Donald Trump and just what the attitude of the Republican base is toward Trump. Uh, it's a magnified party, and if they don't turn on him, it wouldn't matter how effective any of his challengers would be. But if the base of the party begins to wander away, whether it's because of the indictments or other reasons, then it's a different ballgame. Is there anybody out there who you think would be a strong candidate to get the nomination and wrench it away from Trump? No. First, not anybody that, that I could support. But I don't think so, because I appreciate the fact that these candidates have a puzzling task ahead of them, which is you've got a guy with a 30-point lead, and so you've got to take him down to defeat him. But anybody who goes after him seems to implode, and that's a difficult task. So again, I think more than in most elections, Trump is is the key figure. And I don't see other candidates, weak candidates or strong and talented candidates who are going to, on their own, be able to defeat him. So other circumstances would have to intervene. Bill Galston, you wanted to make another point? I do. And Pete and I could have a long discussion of just how weak this field is. But let me tell you how Trump could be defeated. As you know, uh, we're not talking about a single national contest. We're talking about a sequence of contests in which what happens early on has a profound effect on what happens 
later on. So here's a thought experiment for you. Ron DeSantis does not endear himself to the good folks of Iowa, but a fellow by the name of Tim Scott does for all sorts of reasons that I think are obvious, at least in principle, to everybody on this podcast. And to the surprise of everyone, he comes in second in Iowa. What do you think the story is going to be for the next week? I can tell you what it's going to be because I lived through it in 1984 as the issues director for Walter Mondale's presidential campaign. Uh, Mondale got 48% of the vote in Iowa. Gary Hart got 17%, beating out George McGovern for second place. And suddenly, Gary Hart was the anointed challenger. Mm-hmm. And a real dynamic developed where suddenly all of his, his virtues, such as they were, which were boutique virtues, became retail virtues. And he beat Walter Mondale in the New Hampshire primary. And if modern technology had existed back then so that he could reap the financial rewards of his second place finish in Iowa, followed by a stunning upset victory in New Hampshire, he would have won the nomination. So don't assume that we know what's going to happen in the early contests. But what we do know is that what happens in the early contests has a profound shaping influence on what happens afterwards. Well, that is right. Linda, I just bet you saw the exchange that Tim Scott had on The View, which I thought was great, but I have my problems with Tim Scott. So what did you think? Uh, Well, I did see the clips. I've never actually watched The View. Maybe I shouldn't admit to that, but I never have. But I did see the clip. It was all about race. It was about a comment that had been made by one of the regulars on the program who basically said that Blacks who succeed are exceptions. And Tim Scott took great offense at that. And I thought he did a very good job there. I wish I felt more enthusiastic about Tim Scott. Bill may have to work on it. You know, I would be delighted if Tim Scott emerged as the number two in Iowa and that propelled him onto more of a center stage. But I'm not entirely confident how he'll perform there. And, you know, there is this tendency in the Republican Party to look for a great black hope. I mean, we've gone through this over and over again with candidates emerging. I mean, whether it was in a Senate race or presidential race, you remember Alan Keyes, you know, he was flavor of the month for a a long while. And I just worry a little bit that Tim Scott may be. Let me suggest that why I think Tim Scott is not not the next Herman Cain. Okay, I mean, you know, Alan Keyes was, you know, great guy and brilliant guy, brilliant orator, brilliant orator, never got elected dog catcher. Okay, he's had no political experience whatsoever. And did worse than I did in the U.S. Senate race in Maryland, by the <laughs> That's way. That's right. <laughs> and uh, Herman Cain was a flash in the pan. He was a you know, businessman, again, not a politician. Right. People think, well, the voters are looking for a businessman, but... A lot of skeletons in his closet. <laughs> there were that too, right. But you need, you need skills. Now, now, Scott is different. He is really an old-fashioned politician who has climbed up the greasy pole from local office to national office. He is very good at this. 
and he has lots of money in the bank because he has attracted donor interest and people like him personally. He's thought to be the most popular guy in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things suggest that he isn't just a flash in the pan. Um, There are a number of problems, though, and one of them is that people suspect because of things he has said, including when he was asked about January 6th, he said that the one person he does not blame for January 6th is Donald Trump. And when he was asked whether he would consider the vice presidential slot, he said yes. Anybody would be honored. Right. So that's what he's running for, right? That's what that sort of sounds like. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let me see. Should we have a word or two about Ron DeSantis? I mean, I do think it's bizarre, uh, Damon Linker, that DeSantis has decided to take on Trump to a degree, but he's criticizing Trump for the pretty much the only things that Trump did right as president. He's, he's going after him on the vaccines <laughs> and on uh, the first step criminal justice reform act which changed the sentencing guidelines for uh, nonviolent offenders. He's calling that a jailbreak bill. Yeah, I have a a friend who has ties to some of the libertarian groups that really push the First Step Act, and they're all sort of like deer in the headlights right now about this fact, like, oh my goodness, DeSantis is going after that, because, you know, now they're like, well, wait a minute, we were going to maybe support DeSantis, and now he's going after our signature thing. It goes along with what we've seen from DeSantis from the beginning. The only time he ventures forth any kind of criticism of the Trump administration, it's from the right, which is his M.O. In a way, DeSantis is running his own kind of post-2020 version of Ted Cruz's 2016 campaign. I am Mr. Conservative. I am any issue you think of, I will adopt the most right-leaning variation on it, even if it's against Trump, on the assumption that that's what the Republican electorate wants to hear. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that's right. And one bit of evidence for that is the fact that DeSantis is not leading. (laughs) So clearly, they're not immediately hearing what he says and going, yes, what we need is someone who's willing to hit Trump on vaccines, even if a lot of Republican voters lean in the direction of vaccine skepticism. So DeSantis is, is actually so far a remarkably consistent candidate. Now, of course, he only officially launched his campaign a couple weeks ago, but, you know, he's been sort of pseudo running for at least six months through the flurry of hyperactivity in Tallahassee, passing a million bills and constantly doing things to get the kind of Fox News world all revved up for his launch. And throughout that, there have been no real changes, of course. He seems to have sat down with his staff months ago and gamed this out. And one of the elements of their game plan is we will only go after Trump if we're trying to hit him from the further right. So that's, I think, where we consistently are and will continue to be until the DeSantis camp decides that it, it really isn't working and they're not getting any traction. And then that's when things will get interesting and we'll see if he takes a, a different tack, either against Trump or in terms of the policies that he's really so, running on. Yeah, uh, one of the... Um 
pieces of conventional wisdom that came out of 2016 was that the Republican Party was less conservative than intellectuals and thought leaders imagined. And the proof of that was that if you wanted the pure conservatism injected straight into your veins, there was Ted Cruz who was available and Trump was anything but a pure conservative. And yet he uh, mopped the floor with Cruz. And of course, as president, Trump has been all over the map on many issues. And you wrote a piece, Damon, saying that the GOP is kind of post-ideology. But let me just suggest, and anybody is welcome to jump in on this, but there is a difference between not caring about conservatism and just being sort of ensorcelled by Donald Trump. Look, most Republicans will tell you that they liked the policies of Donald Trump, and they're not imagining things. They liked the Muslim ban. They liked the judges. They liked the tariffs. They liked the wall, even if they're misinformed about whether it was finished or not finished. They liked the, let's torture our enemies, torture the families of terrorists. They liked all that. Right? That, that's not post-ideological. Well, I mean, my posts that I've written on this are not meant to be absolute statements of the way the Republican Party is or will develop, but it's more a way of sketching two tendencies. And I think the Trump and DeSantis campaigns give us a good opportunity to see variations here. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but there is a real difference in attitude where I do think DeSantis is running a campaign that is very policy focused. You can tell that his thinking and the thinking of his staff is that The reason Trump is popular, the reason the party has evolved the way it has since 2016 is that the Republican voters were tired of a whole bunch of elements of the Reaganite ideology and they wanted another ideology. And that, for want of a better summary statement, is anti-wokeness, that that is the new ideology and everything else sort of has to follow from that. And and from that follows a, a series of policy commitments that what we need is a very efficient manager or leader like Ron DeSantis to enact those policies, to go after the left and defeat the woke mind virus, as he <laughs> so elegantly puts it. Whereas Trump, I think, is actually practicing a slightly different variation of right-wing politics, which is actually not very ideological, even if on particular issues he sort of ends up haltingly and inconsistently sort of where DeSantis is too, although not on everything. But his is much more about individual judgment. Basically, vote for me, Trump. I alone can fix it, as he famously declared in 2016. He alone can fix it. And that means you need me personally to sort of look at the world, size up every situation as it is, and in the moment just decide to do X, Y, or Z based on my feeling, based on the last person I talked to, based on some polling I saw, based on some Fox News segment I just watched and got me all revved up. Or what some loon on Twitter has circulated. Has said and retweeting it and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, there's there's a way in which this is a 
difference in outlook about how to conduct oneself in politics. Ideology is a form of principle. It's rules. It's saying we as a group, people who are belong to this party, believe in certain principles and we will adhere to them and then do the work of applying them to policy initiatives on the basis of those principles. Whereas Trump is purely in favor of relying on the individual judgment or prudence of the statesman who, again, sizes up each individual thing based on a million considerations in the moment. Now, if you have Churchill (laughs) in office, then relying on the judgment of the statesman is a perfectly fine thing to do. If it's Donald Trump, I think it's incredibly reckless. But I do think there's a large faction of Republican voters who very much want to sort of put themselves in the hands of this great strong man, savior, protector, who is Donald Trump. And in that respect, no one else can equal him. That partly explains why Trump just keeps doing well and it never seems to take a hit to his numbers. And no matter how much DeSantis is basically saying, I'm Trump plus, I'm Trump who can get things done, it works okay. It gets him up to around 20, 25% in the polls, but he doesn't really overtake Trump because he's still not that guy. So again, is this an absolute schematic thing that unlocks everything about the Republican Party these days? No, but I do think it gets at something important about what is distinctive about. Okay. And listeners are fully entitled to substitute the term mob boss for statesman in what Damon just said. I sense Bill doesn't agree with what I've just said. So why don't we hear from Bill at some point? Oh, okay, Bill. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, we'll have less time to talk about the coming indictment, but that's all right. Go for it. Oh, and Pete. Yeah, I'll come to you too, Pete. So, There's no way of addressing what Damon just said quickly, so I'll address it all too briefly. The assumption underlying your remarks, Damon, is that Trump's populism is devoid of ideological content, and I think that's just wrong, and I would be happy to explain why at considerable length, but I will content myself with saying that Trump, in a way, has been the most consistent of the candidates for the longest time. He has been American firsting for the better part of four decades. And America first is an organized way of thinking about domestic and foreign policy and their interaction. He has never wavered on issues of trade or immigration or international alliances or the role of morality in politics, domestic or international. And only if you believe that populism has no ideological content can you believe that Trumpism has no ideological content. It is a counter-ideology to Reaganism. Okay, Pete Weiner. Yeah, just as quickly, I largely agree with Bill on that. I've understood Trump not as a conservative, but as a populist. He's incidentally conservative, like on the judges and some other issues, but that's not based on any kind of ideological belief that he's developed over over the years. So the way to understand him is, is populism. To the degree that there's an ideological construct, 
You actually need to go back to Pat Buchanan in 1992. That's the closest that there is because Buchanan was, in a sense, a canary in the coal mine. He pre-shadowed a lot of, of what we see with Trump. Trump went after uh, entitlement reform, which was not a conservative policy. Paul Ryan had set that up. His spending was enormous. International relations, he certainly wasn't a conservative. The way that he played footsies with so many dictators. But I think his populism is is not intellectual as much as it is dispositional or temperamental. He is just tapping into a ferocious anger at the so-called establishment. And I don't think he's ideologically committed even to populism. I think his view is whatever gives voice to the anger, the rage, the sense of grievances, he's going to to use that. The last thing I wanted to say is that conservatism is more than a set of policies. Indeed, I think in its most fundamental sense, it goes deeper than that. And Trump, in terms of disposition and sentiments, is the most anti-conservative figure imaginable. He taps into mob passions, promotes mob violence, the lawlessness, all of the, the elements from sort of a Burkean, Oakshot view of conservatism. He's the antithesis of that. The Republican Party is not a conservative party anymore. It's, it's a populist party, and it's the ugliest side of populism. All right. We're going to have to leave it there for this week because I want to get your reactions, all of you, to the coming indictment. It is getting very real. There have been tremendous numbers of speculative stories, but this week we did see that Jack Smith has sent a letter to the Trump attorneys informing them that, yes, Donald Trump is the target of this investigation, and that means that he is likely to be indicted very soon. So I will start with you, Linda. It's not clear as of this recording how broad this indictment will turn out to be. So your reaction? I think if there is an indictment handed down soon, my suspicion would be that it would be focused on the documents case and would not include January 6th investigation because I think that one is going to include multiple indictments. It's not just going to be Donald Trump who will be indicted because that was a real conspiracy and there are a number of people, I think, involved there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what's going on with the grand juries because most of the activity has gone on in Washington, D.C. And suddenly there's now a small flurry of activity apparently going on in the Southern District of Florida. And you know, there are a lot of people who want to get Donald Trump, including me, who say, oh, gee, but the jury pool is so much more favorable in the District of Columbia. You know, for that reason alone, it might not be a bad thing to have it come out of Florida, because I think the one thing you do when you indict a president of the United States is you have to make sure that it looks to all of America as something fair. And having a jurisdiction in which you have so few people who have voted for Donald Trump sort of looks like you're stacking the deck. Besides which, it's certainly on the obstruction charge. That activity 
it seems, mostly, if not entirely, took place in Florida. And as I understand it, I'm not a lawyer, but I spent all too much time listening and reading about this case. My understanding is that the law pretty much requires that the obstruction part of the case be charged and tried in Florida. So, look, I think it's not a good day for America. I think it's a very sad day for America. But the fact that it hasn't happened here, it's happened in a lot of countries. I mean, there are a lot of democracies in which former presidents, uh, former chancellors, former prime ministers have been charged with wrongdoing. And have gone to prison. And have gone to prison. That's right. So, I think it is one of the strengths of democracy and the rule of law. I mean, the whole point is no man is above the law. Bill Galston, I know you've gone back and forth about the whole indictment matter. Do you think it's a sad day for America or do you think it's a ratification of no man is above the law? Do I have to choose? (laughs) No. Uh, And I don't. I think it is a sad day when a former president of the United States is indicted for a serious crime, and that is what we're talking about. On the other hand, it would be even sadder you know, if we set aside the rule of law in deference to some political calculus. Because in this case, we are not dealing with, I think, a tough call. The facts seem to be clear beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's what we know in public, and I suspect there's a lot more in private that tends in the same direction. So, you know, I fully acknowledge and continue to buy into my previous political fears, but I don't think there's a choice at this point, certainly not from a legal point of view, and certainly not from a moral point of view. And I might outsmart myself if I tried to calculate the long-term political impact of this. So when you're in doubt, you might as well do the right thing. Yep. Uh, Pete Weiner, what do you say? Yeah, I think they have to go forward with it. I don't think there's much question about it. I am going to be very interested to see a couple of things. One is the effect that it has on the base of the Republican Party. Does this help Trump? Does it not? Is it a neutral thing or does it hurt him? Is there a sense of fatigue that grows? I don't know, but they've never taken an exit ramp so far. Second, the politics of the country more broadly, what this is going to do. We may have to buckle our seatbelts up even more. Third thing is, of course, we need to see the specifics of, of the indictment. But I've always wondered whether he had those documents because he was thinking about selling them to somebody. I don't know that, obviously, but we'll know more once the indictment comes down. Well, not to engage in too much irresponsible speculation, but it did cross my mind that he took the documents, apparently, it's been reported, regarding Iran's progress toward a nuclear bomb. And he is awfully close to the Saudis, as we've seen even this week with the Gulf thing. So that is something that is deeply worrying. And one of the things that, by the way, the special counsel is investigating, asking for documents from the Trump organization vis-a-vis their relations with a series of foreign countries, including Saudi Arabia. Okay, Damon Linker. Sure. Well, my my longstanding position is that this isn't a good idea, but I fully agree with Bill and Peter and pretty much everyone that at this point, there is not much that can be done because Trump just 
you know, seems to have broken a lot of laws all over the place. <laughs> and at a certain point, there is a kind of internal logic to the rule of law that you can't just flagrantly abscond from the White House with classified documents, refuse to give them back. And then even when the feds come to take them back, you keep a few more and eventually you got to make a move. I just really worry about what this is going to do to the base of the Republican Party, I think we have no idea how far out there they could become. We could look back on the the last six years of the Republican base as the moderate phase compared to what lies ahead. Uh, all right. Okay. With that, we will turn to our highlight or low light of the week, Bill Galston. I have two low lights, unfortunately. Let me begin with the obvious one. The abject surrender of the PGA, the Professional Golf Association, to the lure of Saudi money. As many people know, at least a little, I'm a golfer, so I know more than a little, the Saudis established their own golf circuit, the LIV circuit, as an alternative to the Professional Golf Association. Its offer was very simple. To the golfers, you got more money for less work. A lot of people said yes to that, but it meant going along with all sorts of bad things about the Saudi regime, including the fact that this was a deliberate effort on their part to launder their public image and recover from the continuing fiasco of the Khashoggi murder. My second low light of the week, a little bit more obscure, except for my colleague Damon Linker, is the publication of Patrick Deneen's latest anti-liberal screed, this one called Regime Change, and he means it. And this is a very intelligent, conservative intellectual adopting the worst of the populist critique of liberalism and providing the veneer of respectability to a political movement that could do a great deal of damage at home and abroad. And by liberalism, he doesn't mean progressivism. He means like liberalism in the sense of 19th century liberalism. He means everybody from John Locke on who has the temerity to offer a political theory based on individual rights and limited government. There you go. Okay, that's where the right is going. Okay, Linda Chavez. Well, I have a highlight. I'm not sure that it is a highlight because I entirely agree with the decision, but nonetheless, it's my highlight of the week, and that is the Supreme Court decision that was handed down this week in a voting rights case involving the state of Alabama. That state, which is heavily controlled by Republicans in redrawing Districting maps created essentially six majority white and very difficult for anyone but a white to be elected in the districts and one majority black district. And the Supreme Court this week handed down a decision that was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, joined also by Justice Kavanaugh and the three liberals on the court. And there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, gee, this is very bad news for those of us who want to see a decision knocking down racial preferences in college admissions and the Harvard and North Carolina cases. I don't read it that way. I think this decision 
was one that says, whether you agree or disagree with the way a law is written, if it's written in a certain way, we as justices of the Supreme Court don't have a right to change the words and the clear meaning of those words. And in this case, that means that in the state of Alabama, there may have been an intent to essentially force most black voters into a single voting district, meaning that they would likely only be able to elect one member in the congressional delegation. And in that case, that left the other six districts being able to elect Republicans. Yeah, and even though by population, they should have been entitled to two, right? Right, yeah. right. By population and, and the clear meaning, I mean, of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I happen not to like <laughs> the language of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I was opposed to the amendment that put that language, the effects test in, in 1982. But if you don't like a law, you got to change it. Right. You don't want the Supreme Court rewriting it. Okay, very good. Damon Linker. Well, we have a bit of a problem here because Linda stole my highlight of the week. <laughs> I, I would have gone like extemporized and gone to the Deneen book, but Bill mentioned that. So uh, let me just let me just oh, no. reemphasize the awfulness of the Deneen book and the very good news of the Supreme Court decision. I'm especially pleased that this decision not only confounded the assumption that, oh, everything is predetermined on the court. You've got six conservatives and three liberals. Therefore, all controversial decisions will knock out that way. This shows that is not true. And it also demonstrates, once again, as we've seen on selected issues, Roberts and Kavanaugh do make up a somewhat less ideologically conservative block on the court that are reachable and willing to make alliances with the three liberals. So that, that I think, is a, an encouraging sign for future cases as well. So there, I added a little bit, but it's still not a fresh new highlight. That's more than fine, Damon. Pete Weiner. Yeah, mine's not a highlight or a low lot. It's just a personal reflection, a bit of a tribute. Um, our beloved dog, Romeo, was put down a few days ago. He had inoperable um, cancer. And I had never before owned a dog. And I must say, I was not prepared for the grief that it um, that it brought. And uh, we've had him for a dozen years. And one of the things that struck me was his love was so simple and uncomplicated and limitless. And there was a guilelessness to him. He was, he was really, really special. And I was talking to my daughter, Christine, and she said that Romeo was so consistent that his love was so pure. And it, and it was. And I'm no expert on canine soteriology, and, and I'm not, not a Catholic, but I agree with John Paul II, who said that animals have souls, and Romeo had a particularly beautiful soul, and I feel like our family will see him again. I remember when I was once at a luncheon where Father Scalia, one of Justice Scalia's sons, who's a priest, was present. And the children around the table were asking him whether there would be pets in heaven. And he said, well, I don't know whether they get there on their own. But he said, if what you need to be happy in heaven is a dog, you will have a dog, <laughs> which is very sweet. Amen. All right. I would like to do two quick things. One is I want to note that the Freedom Forum is honoring 
this year, some people who don't get nearly enough attention. There are rare spirits in this world who show superhuman courage for the sake of things that matter, and they are honoring some of them. I won't name them all, but several uh, I will name. Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure in Russia who voluntarily, after being poisoned by Putin, nevertheless went back knowing that he stood a very, very strong chance of being imprisoned and losing not just his liberty, but potentially his life. He is languishing in prison. Freedom Forum is honoring him. He didn't have the greatest, most perfect record before, but since uh, returning to Russia, he's been a true hero. Also, they are going to recognize two journalists who are being held Austin Tice and Evan Gershkovich. I hope that we all remember them and don't let their imprisonment fade from our consciousness. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to mention is a piece by Matt Iglesias on his substack, Slow Boring, where it's titled, Misinformation Isn't Just on the Right. And it's a really good piece. We rehearse on this podcast all the time, the siloing of information and the misinformation that is so rampant among conservatives these days. But he points out that there's a lot that's on the left as well, and also in the center. And he gives examples of all. And uh, it's worth remembering that all of us have to be on guard against misinformation and confirmation bias. And with that, I want to thank Pete Weiner for joining us today. And of course, my regular panel, our sound engineer today is Jonathan Siri, and our producer is Katie Cooper. And uh, I also want to thank our wonderful listeners. And we will return next week as every week. <laughs>